Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, folks. 2020 has, to put it mildly, presented some challenges for all of us. You know, the good news, our patrons' numbers are still growing, almost daily. I truly, truly cannot thank all of you enough for your support. It's been overwhelming. And for those of you who've had to reassess your budgets, please know, I totally get it. And I will always be grateful for your belief in this program and the power of great content. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you every day to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tack box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. Our patrons make all of this possible. The funds are specifically designated only for overhead. They literally keep the MP3s rolling. Meanwhile, the patrons-only After Dark Facebook Live and Zoom meetings each month truly have been a fabulous success. Conversation, support, laughter, some education, some mentorship, lots of encouragement, and even, randomly, the occasional adult beverage. So click the link at www.puredogtalk.com and become a patron today. Your small contribution helps make a huge voice for purebred dogs. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I'm your host, Laura Reeves, and this is part two of a super exciting panel discussion on breeding dogs, preservation breeding, and I'm talking to three amazing dog breeders. It happens that they are all breeders of toy dogs, which just kind of wound up that way. And they're all from Canada. So ah, it was an accident. (laughs) But I want to absolutely welcome Amanda Kelly back. She's been on the show before. Wendy Paquette back. She's also been on the show before. And welcome Chris Hertz, her first time here on the show. And our topic today is breeding with an emphasis on planning your family of dogs. Okay, so Amanda actually brought up a really good point that Chris touched on earlier, and I'm going to go to Wendy to expand on it. And that is using your standard as the driver. And Wendy, when you were first talking, you were talking about the dogs that came from England and the dogs in North America and how different they were. And you have established a really clearly obviously identifiable, pick it out of a pack, even me and I don't know, diddly from squat. (laughs) So using the standard as a driver to get where you are today. Speak to that. Okay. The gene pool for Shih Tzus is far beyond anything anybody ever thought it would be. There was a Shih Tzu in almost every household. Unfortunately, Shih Tzu breeders today, I feel, just breed to the dog next door on a regular basis. They don't venture out They don't go cross-country. They don't see what's happening in other parts of the world. So what I've done over the years is leased males from other breeders, ones that I had respect for and ones that I finished for them in Canada. And 
kept them for about six months to a year. And I bred six to 10 bitches to them at a time to that same dog. So what I did was I could tell whether there was consistency or not. And I would keep one or two out of every litter and send the dog on its own, like back home and go from there with the offspring. So then I had a basis with one dog being dominant. And if I felt that dominant dog was a great producer consistently, then I doubled on it. But if it wasn't, oh, well, I had a bunch of pets that year. Right. And to me, if you're going to have a stud dog, that's the only way to prove them, improve them young, improve them early. Otherwise, why keep them? Right. So my boys are used very consistently in the first year. As soon as they're of breeding age, I do their titles, prove them. If they're worth keeping, then I work on them. If they're not, they're gone. The breeders that just breed to the dog next door or the dog in the next state or whatever don't have a clue what they're producing. They just keep the most pretty marked puppy that has an attitude. And they wonder why they're not getting anywhere. Well, they don't have any idea where those dogs came from to begin with. They have no foresight. Right. And I think one of the things that you're talking about this, and it, again, harkens me back to one of my very first mentors in Wirehair Pointers was a gal by the name of Mildred Ravel, who was an older woman by the time I met her in the 90s. And she had been breeding Wirehair Pointers since the 60s. And that was what she would do. And Sue Fagan, another breeder mentor in Ibethan Hounds, you guys might know her. She was the same way. They would pick a stud dog. This is my stud dog for this period. And everything got bred to that stud dog. And then, I mean, it was amazing to see the consistency that came from that basic concept without losing anything, as far as I could tell. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So with all of that, Looking to the standard, and Chris, maybe you can fill in on it, going back to talking about what the standard was for Pomeranians and what you were seeing and what you brought, what you used as your blueprint, and why that standard is so incredibly important. Laura, I think because I was very new to this, I married, my husband John was involved in Corgis, and he had the experience behind him to know that the best thing to do is breed your bitch to a number of dogs, not at the same time, obviously. So the idea of breeding your bitch in a couple different directions to see which gives you that nick we were talking about earlier. Exactly. And exactly what Wendy just spoke to is exactly what we do. We find dogs that exemplify what the breed should look like. Our interpretation, obviously, of the standard, but correcting some of those old time faults that existed bring the dogs up to be not only competitive, but to be outstanding members of their breed, examples of their breed. And there are dogs in various parts of the world that we were totally unaware of. For example, in North America, mouth is just how the teeth meet. There is no reference to a closed fontanelle, which is very important. There is no mention of patellas being grade one, two, three, or four, not patellas at all. And so these items are extremely important. So you can look at it and say, but they're not mentioned in their standards, so they don't matter. But of course they matter because 
if you go to some other part of the world, you'll find out you can't even walk into the ring with a dog that's four and six or a dog that hops around the ring or any of the problems that exist that mean the people in Europe can't show their dogs because they're not healthy enough. So part of that in our standard, while it doesn't exist, the health of a breed is everything if you want it to continue. We're not preservation breeders if we say it doesn't matter about the teeth. They're not mentioned in our standard. Well, maybe it does matter. And so I think by just by seeing what is available in the rest of the world and how other breeders approach your breed and what they've gotten to show for that is the best education in the world. And to just sit at home and say, this is how we've always done it. It's not good enough. There are beautiful examples of other breeds and you look at them and you look at how did people get there? How did they accomplish that? And then you say, how do I apply that to my breed? Each one of you guys is bringing me to mind certain things. Amanda talking about health problems, that was an experience that I lived through with my own breeding program with Wire Hair Pointers. My foundation bitch, OFA had just created the thyroid panel as a thing, right? Like you could just get your, so I had done my T3, T4, like everybody in 1990, whatever. And she was clear. And they got the new test. I was like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to run it. Oh, guess what? (laughs) She wasn't clear. And so I spent, I've spent 25 years doing lobbying on the dangers and the unintended consequences and the disastrous effects of breeding on from known hypothyroid dogs from even, I finally took out all of my equivocal dogs because I kept seeing other more serious autoimmune problems. And so like Amanda, my entire breeding program has been wrapped around having to wash out, having to flush out this particular disease process. And so I, for example, I'm doing my very first in 25 years, my very first half brother, half sister breeding, because I have finally outcrossed and outcrossed and outcrossed and loosely line bred and done all of this scattering around that I can bring back two healthy, completely clear descendants and line breed them on their mother who's a bird dog and healthy and great temperament and winner's bitch at the national. And finally, I have what I can double up on. And it took me 25 years <laughs> of my own, you know, none of my parents, none of nothing, this is me all on my own trying to do this. And so I hear that pain <laughs> and I hear the pain of you have to breed to the standard. Oh, wait. When someone who's winning all kinds of ribbons says, well, I don't really care what the code is. It says German wire-haired pointer. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Not caring about the code might be a problem. So these kinds of things, I think, for all of us in every breed across the board are considerations. One of the things that, and Chris and I have had this conversation before, and I loved Wendy's discussion about building a breeding program and having the ability to try different things and having maybe a critical mass of dogs. One of the things I think a lot of people in today's breeding world struggle with is not having the ability to have that many dogs. For whatever reasons, they live, you know, in the suburbs or they just can't keep that many dogs or whatever. Take your pick. Chris gave me some really helpful advice. And she talked about working with other breeders in a family 
And so maybe, Chris, you might explain that a little bit, because I found it really helpful as someone with a really small breeding program. We have a small breeding program. I mean, our numbers are right around 12. And considering we're raising puppies and we have bitches that are in our breeding program and maybe a couple that are growing up, that's not a lot of stuff to work with. And we constantly get asked, can I buy a dog from you? Can I buy a dog from you? We don't have anything for sale. But what we really, really are passionate about is if we can't sell you a dog and we love this person because they have the same passion and the same commitment to the same type of dog that we have, it may not be the same breeding, but they have what we feel it takes, not pick up the phone and say, how much is a dog? These are people that are dedicated. They've dedicated their lives to breeding better dogs. We love what they breed, how their dogs look. They could fit with ours or whatever. So we say, we can't sell you a dog, but we can lease you a dog. And so our males have way more miles on them than I do. In that, for example, Colby has been to Brazil for a year, Thailand for a year, Finland, half a dozen places. Wow. And he was just awarded top producing stud dog in the American Pomeranian Club last year. And the dog got there because of other breeders, not because of what we did. But all we can give as our gift is our dogs. We'll share them. And we won't share them with just anybody, but we will share them with like-minded people. And the reason is selfish, because those people will use that dog, and those puppies will have puppies. And in the third generation, we will see something we love we then ask them to do the same thing for us. And we borrow that dog back and we incorporate our dog, who is the grandfather probably, into our breeding program. And they just click. They work like a miracle. I love that. It just works for us. And I know you do that too, Wendy. I was just going to say that you and I have dogs in the same countries all over the world. (laughs) And they come back to us eventually. And Mm -hmm. in another generation or two, we ask for something back in return. And that's showing respect for other people that show our passion. Exactly. And it just works. Today, with the animal rights people, Mm -hmm. with the smaller breeding programs, I guarantee you can't do it on your own. You cannot. But you can do it with the help of your friends. And we have people all over the world that, We wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for what they contribute to our breeding programs and what we can contribute to theirs. So in effect, we maybe have 50 dogs in our family group, Mm -hmm. but it's not because we have 50 dogs at home, nor does anyone else. Nor does anyone else anymore. (laughs) I think it underlines how important having friends really is. It's about having access to a larger gene pool, and it's about having access to a larger number of dogs. And it's also, I think, for newer breeders about developing an eye. You know, if you are in a breed where there's lower numbers or whatever the case may be, developing your eye can sometimes be a difficult thing. You just see the ones that are yours, and maybe you go and see, you know, the national once a year. 
look at pictures on Facebook, but that's not the same thing as looking at puppies and evaluating and sharing information about what worked and what didn't work and the trial and error pieces of it that Wendy talked about. When you have great friends, you can share in their journey as well as in yours and learn as much from what they've done and what's worked for them as for yourself. Sharing is caring. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like that, Wendy. I really like I, that. I, yeah, I should throw away my t-shirt that says blank, blank, I have enough friends. <laughs> <laughs> if breeders of our status don't share, then what's going to happen to the breeds in the long haul? I agree. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, crew. Embark is really, really committed to providing a resource for responsible breeders and purebred dog enthusiasts. And we know these are tough times. And to help serve breeders right now, when we need it, starting in April, Embark is going to reduce its prices significantly through a series of sales and programs to help make the DNA testing even more accessible for everybody. So stop by, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders, or hop onto their Embark for Breeders Facebook page and take a look at what they have on offer. As always, Embark's leading DNA test kits provide a comprehensive assessment of your dog's genetic health, genetic diversity, and physical traits. And I can tell you, I just got back the two Embark tests that I had done on my own dogs, and it was so cool. And I spent like half the day clicking through all the fun stuff. So stop by the Pure Dog Talk website and click the Embark logo on the homepage and take a look at what they have on offer. My version of that is that I have a number of young women who have worked for me or what have you over the years, and I just keep giving them dogs. Like, I don't sell them dogs. I just give them dogs. To me, selling puppies is, you know, whatever. I'm more interested in putting them with people I trust in homes that I know and I can count on, right, to do what they say they're going to do. And this isn't how I make a living. And, you know, I mean, I pay my bills, whatever, but nitpicking at each individual puppy being sold, I'd much rather put a dog with someone that I know and trust personally, that isn't in a position to pay me because I know it'll come back to me later. And that's my version of basically wire hair pointers. We don't ship them around the world very much. You know, they don't fit in a Sherpa bag so hot, but that has been a really good. And I have a couple breeders that I do the same sort of thing you're talking about. And I think that is valuable. And I know for a fact that that's Bill Shelton. I remember talking to him about his family of dogs and developing, and I loved this and I implemented it since I talked to him, developing an entirely second bitch line. So the idea you have your foundation bitch, like I'm on, got this litter, this will be generation eight on this bitch line. Well, I've got this whole other bitch line that I've been developing, pulling forward from some of my breeder friends and pulling in my own stud dogs. And so now I've got what I like to refer to as the Scotia Kennel Midwest. I've got all these puppies shipped off to Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) And they're going to build up from that bitch line. And I'm just very excited about it. So yeah, I think that I don't have to send mine to Thailand. (laughs) Iowa's good enough. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I truly and sincerely believe that we have to share. 
we have to encourage, we have to mentor. And sometimes we have to take a chance. Like I have every desire in the world to never sell a dog to someone I don't know. It's just right there. But at the same time, we have to take those chances. And I did that with a bitch recently who I think this is a perfect example of why we take chances. And we can all list the reasons why we shouldn't because we all have the horror stories. But this, I want to use this as a positive because it really was great. Fellow wanted a dog for me, wanted to breed it. I said, "Mm," I said, I don't really, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z. Let's start out with this slowly. And so eventually the dog grew up. He let me see it. I said, okay, she looks like she could finish her championship. She got coat. This is something we kind of battle and wear her pointers is having enough furnishings instead of throwing back to the short hair. We need to make sure we have enough hair. And she had been borderline as a baby. So I said, okay, do the health testing. So he goes and he does the entire chick clearance on the bitch. She comes back, OFA, excellent. I'm like, okay, well, let's show her. Now keep in mind, this was not my pick puppy. This was like number 12 in a litter of 12 or, you know, 10 in a litter of 12. This was a nice bitch, but nothing spectacular. And she went out with a handler friend of mine in January and finished in seven shows. No problem. I'm like, okay, well, let's breed her. So we have it all scheduled. And, you know, he has been super responsive. He's been on the ball. He's listened. And that kind of positive interaction in a mentoring relationship restores our faith in those that sometimes can be badly burned by people. We've all been there. We all know that. The new people that we're talking to aren't the old people that burned us. And I think that's so hard for us sometimes to remember. Right. I agree. Yeah. So I've been trying. I've been (laughs) stretching out on that. (laughs) And Amanda, I'm going to let you close us out. We're just about to the end of time with bringing it full circle on that conversation about the standard as the driving force for where you're going with this program. Well, you know, I think I really hear some of the things Chris said about breed standards, and I see it in my breed in some ways in the same way and in some ways in very different ways. So Chris talked about having a breed standard change the shape of the dog, and that happened in my breed in the early 1990s. The breed standard was changed in the U.S., and it is a very different shaped dog with a different style croup and a bigger gait than was probably typical before that. We're going through a process right now talking about teeth, Chris. We had some changes actually proposed through the AKC Gazette recently for our breed standard that talked about dentition specifically. One of the really interesting things about that whole issue is that dentition, having full dentition was not a requirement in our breed standard until the revision in the AKC standard in the early 1990s. And previous to that, it wasn't mentioned. Now, I always think to myself, you can't just write something down on a piece of paper and assume that it's therefore going to be there just because you decided. Just because I said I wanted it that way. (laughs) Right. So there's been lots of discussion about dentition because it's an issue. It's certainly an issue in the toys, maybe not surprisingly. So there was maybe a wish to make some wiggle room away from full dentition. And some wording was proposed that would make one missing tooth a fault and two missing teeth a serious fault. And so ever the scientists, I was able to kind of work with my health chair cohort with the American Club. And we did an actual survey of Manchester exhibitors and breeders to get a hold on what is the actual dentition in the breed. So we're making decisions about our breed standard 
based on reality and what's out there. And, you know, before we came on, I was actually just doing math, which is always scary, um, looking at the survey results. And it looks like, you know, we have about 44% of toy Manchesters have full dentition and the rest don't. And in toys, again, specifically, about 46% reported missing two or more teeth. So that means we've now got almost 50% of our breed population who would have what would be termed a serious fault. And so, you know, we really do need to look at those changes from the perspective of gene pool management, because we know that in our breed, at least, there are no pet breeders. This is a breed that's sustained by the purebred dog fancy. So any change to anything that affects competition affects what's bred. And, you know, we don't want to create, I hope, I mean, it's obviously a wider discussion among breed fanciers, but I would hope that we would want to make decisions that safeguard as much diversity and as many members of our gene pool as possible. That being said, you know, we are really lucky compared maybe to some of the other conversations. I would say right now in my breed, we have a collection of probably some of the most conscientious, knowledgeable, dedicated people that we've maybe had in the entirety of my memory in the breed. Mm -hmm. So that's a really wonderful thing. But anyway, sorry, I know that wasn't really answering your question because I always have like a long verbal diarrhea answer to every question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Back to your actual question. One of the things about breed standards that I think is really important to remember is that they're just a collection of words. And they can be interpreted in so many different ways. And depending on how your breed standard's written, it may actually encompass a lot more styles than we as individual breeders necessarily recognize. So if I look at my own breed standard in Canada, and it's one of the oldest breed standards for Manchester Terriers in the world, and is virtually unchanged really since the late 1800s, it kind of describes a black and tan dog with a particular shaped head and a marking pattern. And, you know, there's a few little intricacies of breed type that are important. But the head description, like, you know, I can pick out a head that I love from a mile away. But if you actually look at the words, the heads that somebody else might like maybe are no more or less incorrect. They might not be my style, but I think an ability to be able to appreciate every dog that's before you for what it is and what it brings to the table is a really important thing when you're looking at a very small gene pool. And I'd like to think that I can take different dogs who may not look like cookie cutters, but who are all very nice examples of the breed in their own right and exhibit them and have them be successful because they are being evaluated according to the actual written words. Right. Okay. I love it. You guys, this was so good. (laughs) And I think, you know, the important thing that I take away from all of this is not so much exactly how you get where you're going, but that you have a plan and that you have a roadmap and that you think about it (laughs) and that you think ahead And you know that you're going to turn right in three miles instead of just randomly screeching your tires off the freeway. And I think to me, that's my big takeaway. And I'm talking to three incredibly successful breeders. I've done my own thing. And I do think that that is the biggest piece of it. Whatever your plan is, have a plan. And know that sometimes the plan changes. (laughs) Amanda, your situation with your dogs. So anything else, Chris or Wendy, you would like to add to that? We all interpret the standard differently. I think what gets lost in the shuffle is 
breeders not recognizing quality in other people's breedings. And that has to be a priority. <laughs> I'm sorry. We all take the, our own dogs Absolutely. home tonight and we all have to love our dogs and we all have a plan. Whether or not it's their plan is their problem, not mine. Perfect. Chris, in closing, your thoughts. I knew you were going to get me on this. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. Without a plan, you can't drive to Halifax unless you have a map. If you've not been there before, and it's no different in breeding dogs. All you need is a plan, but if all you see before you is what exists, how can you go any further or breed any better? Love That's that. Love that. That's beautiful. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate your time and your passion and your dedication. I appreciate you all so very much. And I know our audience does also. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.